The talk tonight is about wise investigation. And perhaps, uh, if there's time, uh, loneliness and peace. So this is um, just the end of a poem by Robert Frost uh, named um, Carpe Diem. The present is too much for the senses. Too crowding, too confusing, too present to imagine. The present is too much for the senses. Too crowding, too confusing, too present to imagine. I'm jumping off from Randall's talk about <laughs> confusion. <laughs> the Buddha said that um, there are six sense doors. And one of the other translations for doors is sensitivities, which I, I really like sensitivities. So if you think of the ear door as the ear sensitivity, the eye door as the eye sensitivity, etc., nose door, nose smell sensitivity, taste sensitivity, and this amazing body. I mean, it's, it's massive, right? The body sensitivity. And then you go through all of these, and then there's the mind door. The mind sensitivity. And it's considered at the heart center. So, you know, we hear this, but it's very important to remember that the heart-mind, it's a very hard thing to translate if um, you're a Westerner trying to translate the word chitta. Chitta means consciousness, which means knowing. So the knowing mind is considered at the heart center. This is the mind sensitivity or the heart sensitivity. Mostly we don't relate to our heart as an organ. But it can be helpful. Because when you hear sounds, and you know that there will be a range of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Or when you see sights, and you know there will be a range of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You don't tend to sit there <laughs> or walk and think, um, well, if I just got rid of the sounds, or I just got rid of sight, if I got rid of my ear, I got rid of my eye, I'd be fine, right? But with thinking, Really, we just have this relationship to thinking that if we could just get rid of it, we'd be fine. You know, and we don't have that relationship to the other sense sensitivities, the, the doors. So one important aspect of these sensitivities, and I mentioned it before, is that to remember that for the ear door to pick up the speed of sound, it has to it has to be extraordinarily sensitive. This has nothing to do with the perception of knowing that something might be a car. That's, a, that's the mind. But the, the, the actual physical sensitivity, the ear door, that can pick up vibration and texture. And then it's the mind that translates it, the heart center that translates that into door. You know, not door, sorry, uh, uh, airplane or whatever. It's, it's the knowing hearing is happening is the mind. So the mind, again, if you think of it, light is traveling at a certain speed, sounds traveling at a certain speed. Um, the, the possibility that chitta is boundless that consciousness is boundless. And that, that this, this heart center is that sensitive. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like you couldn't even call it a supersonic sensor. It wouldn't be um, strong enough or clear enough at how, how sensitive the mind door really is. 
It's so when we when we contemplate the range of joy and sorrow in this world, that range of pleasure and pain that can happen, and what I wonder is like, why aren't more people just just making a soft mental note? Ow, <laughs> ow. You know, we could be going ow, ow, ow. You know, it's like that's basically that that's that range that we have all these defense mechanisms that prevent us from really feeling the mind door, what's really happening. And then, you know, the, the technical aspect of this is fascinating because pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is mental. It's also the mind door. So that if there's a sight, if there's a smell, if there's a taste, if there's a, a sound, if there's a thought, you know, if there's a body sensation, in any moment, simultaneously, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. Again, that just to sense how, um, if you thought of it as the most sensitive instrument that could ever be designed, and we take birth into it, it's like it's awesome. But we ought, it's like we don't quite appreciate that it's so sensitive. It's so much more sensitive than the ear or the eye. That's what, that's what at least one can keep reminding oneself of. <clears throat> the present is too much for the senses. Too crowding, too confusing. So the idea of mindfulness practice is you, you develop the ability to perceive information, they call it bare attention, but you're perceiving sound as vibration texture, or perceiving body sensation as, as texture or vibration. You're perceiving emotion as, oh, it's universal, fear, anger, and feeling the sensations in the body as vibration texture. The idea is that you start to be able to, to discern the information. You're not trying to get rid of the information because all this information, the design of a human being, is to give you information. And then again, the mindfulness, the, the Brahma Viharas are meant to help us discern the information we're getting wisely. Bob Dylan wrote a song that Jimi Hendrix did uh, beautifully. They both did, but they, um, I'm, t I'm still uh, picking up where Randall was talking about confusion. Uh, some of you will remember the song. There must be some kind of way out of here, <laughs> said the joker to the thief. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. often why people come to meditation. It's just that, that nothing else has worked. <laughs> it's like desperate. <laughs> <laughs> tried everything, and it's like not working. And it's like because, you know, what is relief? You know, what is the relief from the suffering? And it's like this, this sense doors, it's so um, overwhelming. So the... the um, when we ask, you know, what's the way out of here, in, the, in this practice, it's like, it's by going through experience. And it's by, it's by immersing oneself so deeply in experience and witnessing it from the inside that you understand experience from the inside. And that understanding is the, is the relief. So the way out is through, through understanding. Um, <clears throat> my first experiences with Ruth Dennison have been coming up for me lately. You know, when I think about talks, and I, I heard it was her 90th birthday, uh, so I, I keep thinking, oh, I'm tuning into Ruth. <laughs> um, <clears throat> So that uh, same time period when she had told me, you don't need integration, darling, you need penetration. <laughs> um, then um, 
you know, I went in to sit with her. <laughs> and then we, you know, then there was the walking period. And she calls the walking period, um, I'll do it without the accent first, romper room. <laughs> but it's with the accent, so it's like, it's, you know, she rings the bell and it's like, it's time for romper room. <laughs> romper room is, um, you do it all together. There's no, you never leave the pack. You're always in a group of group. And um, at that time period, we had to go in the basement, and there was no heat in the basement, and it was winter. <laughs> and um, so romper room was, <laughs> you could never recognize it as walking. <laughs> Uh, you, we all had to lay down on the floor of the basement for a really long time, and no, there's no explanation. And I was a really new student, and I was lying there going, "I'm freezing, <laughs> breathing. What does this even have to do with romper room? I mean, it doesn't even, you know, at least if it had some connection to romper room, there might have been some glimmer of." understanding, you know, but all I could, it was just like, this is torture, <laughs> oh, this is fun. It wasn't what I had signed up for. <laughs> and then, she had a little record player, you know, that played 45s, and just really old, and the needle must have been <laughs> when she was born, I mean, it was <laughs> you know, so it was like, <laughs> and you, you were lying on the cold floor, and then that meant the, when you were to stand up and start dancing. <laughs> I want to say, this was like my first exposure to meditation. <laughs> so she's like, dance, dance, romp our room, romp our room. And so then I was, I was like, okay, you know, very self-conscious, not like liking this experience. and. Um, and about every minute, she'd go, Misha, no, that's wrong. <laughs> no explanation. It was public humiliation. <laughs> it just, I was diving down, you know. I was like wishing we were still lying on the cold. <laughs> it was just like, and um, every time I would start to feel like I was loosening up from being frozen, and, you know, <laughs> like being with the music, She'd yell at me, and I'd just be so mad at her. I was so mad at her. I can't even tell you, because, again, there was no explanation. And so then it was the end of Romper Room, you know, the bell, and it was like, oh, thank God. And then I walked back up, you know, just looking forward to sitting. I can't even tell you. I, I hated sitting, but, you know, it's like, you know, I was just like, I couldn't wait to, you know, okay, she's going to leave us alone. You know, do something normal, like sit, you know, and it wasn't normal for me at all, but it was like anything but romp. <laughs> so I sit down, and she goes, Michelle, and it's like, oh, I was so mad. I, you know, she was picking on me. It's like Michelle. I was like, oh. and she said, "What is, not what you want to get." And then she was quiet for a while. <laughs> and I was like. It was so intense. Like, I was so, like, broken open. And it was like, oh. she was so right. It was like, it was so harsh. But it, and it was, in a way, it was brutal. But it was like, she's, it was basically, she's saying, the present moment is not about what, you're, what you want. It's like, it's what is happening. What is happening? And over time, not that I, I chose to repeat that experience ever again, um, but I really felt like every time, looking back, every time I would sort of lose my sense of a self in the movement, when there wasn't mindfulness, she would yell. But she didn't explain it, so it was very hard. So, so one, of the, one of the things I wanted to go into um, first, in terms of this talk, Wise Investigation, was really that um, in terms of method, I wouldn't agree with that method, <laughs> but in terms of understanding what we're doing, there's a way in which you'll hear us talk about we talk a wechara, and we talk a wechara Connecting, sustaining, does not mean that we're mindful. 
It means that we're um, that the attention is is concentrated. It's concentrated. So say I was about to stand up. We tackle we chara would be as I connect my attention with my body, and I'm I'm with the experience of standing up. But I'm not absorbed in it. I'm not I'm not lost in that experience. And so one of the things we're doing in meditation over and over again is we're learning how to witness. We're learning to kind of step out and, and look in. Because when we're inside the experience, we're lost in it. We don't have any mindfulness yet. And so part of, part of learning to meditate is actually learning to step out and learn how to have an awareness. Say, and, and I, I think I'm getting better at explaining. If my hand is awareness, then awareness can actually open up. And you, you start having an awareness that can witness meaning if there's a sensation in the bottom of the foot. The attention can kind of go, and it's not inside yet. It's just noticing. There's still a subject and an object. If there's fear, there's an, awa an awareness that can go, oh, fear, and open up and observe. It's called observing. And there's an observed, observer, observe. That's a lot of practice, learning how to, how to do that with everything. There's another part of the practice where you learn to bring your attention in. And when we bring our attention in, there's a tendency to drown, to get lost in it, that, that you don't maintain the witness. So a peak experience in meditation is when the witness is inside the experience. That's a peak experience. You're marrying two kinds of attention. You're marrying the ability to observe and connect. And they'll call it, it's called subject-object disappears. There's no longer an observer or observed. There's no longer um, a controller or controlled. So, <laughs> In, when you're learning to ride a bicycle, you know how you kind of catch your balance and then you fall off and you catch your balance and you're falling off? So sometimes, say I asked you to bring your attention inside the hand, not outside the hand, but inside the hand. Your attention might try to go in and it might be that some thought happens and you're gone. Or, you know, it's like maybe there's like some heaviness and it's like... Um, something happens. It's like, oh, you know, there's just this sort of glimmer of like, oh, <laughs> this is not just the word hand. You know, there's like, maybe there's coolness. But you can't make that happen, but there'll be like a, there'll be an impact. There'll be a kind of impact. And that comes from just being willing to experiment. You go inside, and you see if you can um, be witnessing it from the inside. Um, If you can't, you witness it from the outside. And I'm not even talking about identification yet. Because whether the attention is inside or outside, either way it can be identified. It can be like my fear, or my sound, or that your sound, or uh, that bird, or you know my knee, or do you see what I mean? It's like whether no matter where the attention is, it can be. It can seem like it's identified or not. It's it's free or not. But surely the beginning part of meditation is learning again with my hand, like a hand. It's like the attention has to learn how to do all these different focuses. And and you don't you can't do it perfectly all the time. Like you get it. You you do a few seconds of we talk a charm. We charm. Look how hard it is to, to say okay going to be aware of standing and make it all the way to the stand without getting distracted, right? So that concurrence, being able to or connect, sustain, that's a lot of the practice. And whether you're sort of inside the body or witnessing the body, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're like it's attempting to take again these, these um, manageable se segments. Trumpo Limpache said something, and I I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote, but it, it would be like, 
um, for us to get here to that door, like when we're walking out of the hall, he said we can barely get from here. He's oh yeah, we can barely get from here to the next corner without entertaining ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> barely, and we can't. You actually can't make it from here to the door without something happening and throwing you off. Usually, it's that hard, and that's why we take. You know, bear, lift, move, place. That's why I say lift, move, space, because it's like, <laughs> it's so much more realistic. <laughs> so I just wanted to repeat that. Um, I wasn't really going to go into this, but maybe it just keeps coming up, so I will. Um, some of you know this already, but it, it helps to be reminded that there's two really different kinds of meditations. There's fixed concentration meditation and momentary uh, concentration. And fixed concentration would be as if the room was dark right now, and we put, Randall put a candle out here, and we asked you to just keep looking at the light of the candle, the flame. That's the, that's the practice. And if knee pain happened, you'd ignore it, and you'd keep looking at the flame. And then if fear happened, you'd ignore it, and you'd look at the flame. And if, you know, whatever, if a sound happened, you'd ignore it. If a, you'd ignore, 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 ignore. And you keep looking at the flame. And the goal of that practice is Calm, and it almost makes me laugh because it's it's so funny. Why it's, it leads to calm, oneness, bliss. Why? Because we're we're repressing everything. <laughs> we're ignoring everything. We all want that. <laughs> we want more and more and more of that. I mean, of course we want that because it's like you know it's called the happiness of concentration. It's called the happiness of seclusion. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Usually mantras are that kind of meditation. Um, it doesn't uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. It doesn't, it doesn't help us be with the life moving and therefore our reactions to life moving. But it is a rest. It's, it, the happiness of uh, seclusion is no joke. Uh, in, in momentary concentration, which is vipassana, we're compromising. Meaning that we anchor the attention. The anchor is meant to be like the candle, except that the anchor is moving. So that's why it's a compromise. It's still momentary concentration, but you're taking a smaller area, like the movement of the breath. It's meant to be something, if it, whatever is predominant, you don't have to be with it. You keep coming back to the movement of the breath, or alternatively, sound, or alternatively, bodied hands, or some anchor. It's something you learn to come back to. It's, it, you do, you, you, um, the anchor can be used for concentration or insight. So when it's used for concentration, it's meant to be that rest. And you're meant to see that even if you're like with the anchor for a few seconds, in those seconds, you're free from mental torment. Walking, lifting, moving, placing, anything, anything where you're actually concurrent, you're doing we talk and we char, in those moments, you're free from mental torment. The anchor is supposed to be pretty neutral. It's supposed to get us off the intensity junkie. Thing. It's, it, it, we tend to even prefer pain over neutral. So the anchor is actually hard to develop over time because it's, it's meant to be light, not intense, a safe harbor. So it's real, if you think of being lost at sea, a boat lost at sea without an anchor, and how it just has um, no rest, no safety, the anchor is supposed to be something that you cultivate to come back to, 
And you can come back to it as the rest, the calm, the tranquility, the oneness, or like the Buddha called it, that sweet ambrosia. It's that, it's that free from mental torment. Or you can then be with that for a while, the breath, sound, body as an anchor, and then you can um, notice it changing. And when you notice it changing, you notice it take birth. If you're right with that and it disappears, you're understanding the nature of reality. In fact, it can be heartbreaking to really get how it really does take birth, live, and pass away. And then it does, again, take birth. There's no the same breath ever. There's no the same sound. There's no the same anything. And, and so um, the idea is that you start learning how to um, regulate your own practice, and you get the rest because that rest from the intensity, and as Robert Frost was saying, it's like this overwhelm of what's happening at the six sense doors. You learn to stay with one sense door and rest. And that builds up courage. The Buddha called energy courageous energy. And it's, it's described as the courage that it takes to bring your attention to reality, to how things are, without distortion, without embellishment. And it's said that even if you do this for a few seconds, that, that this wise investigation, when you shift and you're with something with, with the, um, the mindfulness, when you're, when you're noticing the behavior of what's happening, when you're witnessing the behavior of uh, the sound of an airplane, or what happens when you chew the lettuce, what happens to it? It's, it's, it's always that question, what's happening to what's appearing? What's happening to what's appearing? It's said that you light up. Investigation is, it's, the Buddha called it like if you go in a dark room and you turn on a light. It's like investigation lights up what hasn't been apparent to us. Vipassana is just being with what's apparent just with what is apparent, without the extra embellishment. Yeah, so before I get into what gets lit up in more detail, um, the practice is one, again, of regulating not perfectly, you're not supposed to sit there thinking about it, but you sort of learn how to just anchor for a while, and then you learn, as Randall was saying this morning, you, you go to what's predominant, something will call the attention, you go, you come back to the anchor, you go, you come back to the anchor, or sometimes you just do choiceless awareness. You might do choiceless awareness for five or ten seconds, which means you might notice right now, Take five seconds. It might be a body sensation, a sound, a sight, a thought. It's, it's very quick. So that's called like you're jumping in the stream. You're jumping in the stream of change. You'll notice that you get lost in thought. Most people need to anchor. But sometimes if the mindfulness and the um, equanimity are high, you would just dive back in the stream. It's like um, there are deeper and deeper levels of immersion. <laughs> and then you pop back out, you dive in. You pop back out, you dive in. If you really get lost in something, you anchor for a while. And it, it's like there, oh, this is very important. There is no sense that anchoring is some kind of kindergarten practice, and that choiceless awareness is like for advanced practitioners. It's not like that. It's much more that when the conditions are ripe, it's really important to anchor. And when the conditions are ripe, 
for choiceless awareness, it's really important to do choiceless awareness. If you're new, you really have to cultivate the anchor because that stillness, like if you looked at the surface of a pond and the, and the waves are there and it, it's windy and it's stormy, you can't explore. You can't see into the, the water and nothing's reflected on it. So the purpose of the anchor is that stillness so that you can look in, see, uh, see, see reflection. So I'm going to try to go into this with a bunch of different angles, <laughs> hopefully. Um, this is um, from the great contemporary writer, Terry Tempest Williams. Um, this is from a book called When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. I am a woman of words. Take away my words and what is left of me. The gift of my patterned mind begins to flatten and take flight, leaving me, leaving those close with no memories of how to apprehend a word like bird. I bleed. I become numb. This frightens me. Why is it so hard to explore? You know, why is it so hard to drop concept? It's because they're secure. It's secure to think that this is a table, <laughs> a Michelle, and this is like a, a window, and you know, it's it's like everything is sort of separate and solid, and uh, it becomes a prison for us. So this is not meant, we're not taking away concept. You're not trying to like abolish concept. It's a level of reality that we function in. Something has happened, somebody comes in, Michelle, you got a phone call. I'm not gonna say the phone is a concept. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's not helpful. Or like, the cook needs some help in the kitchen, Michelle, come, I'm not gonna say, you know, that's a concept, I'm not gonna help you. You know, that's not the idea. The idea is that when you're an infant, you are living in this world of no boundaries and no concepts. And that um, we need concepts to function. They're good. They're a level of reality that's important. And then it becomes a prison for us. It becomes so dull and so boring and so spiritually groundless. It's, it's, it's such a prison. So to live in one dimension of reality when there are so many dimensions of reality and when the spiritual dimension is here all the time, it's invisible, it's palpable. You know, it's like this investigation is so critical. This ability to really question that basic question. Who am I? Who are you? But it's, it's deeper moment by moment. It's like, what is a leg free from the concept? What is a sound? What is a thought free from the concept? And just really being willing. The courage. It's the courage it takes what we there's no other word for it but dropping in. You drop into the experience without the concept. So another way to um, try to talk about that is um, it means <laughs> it means we sacrifice the need to know what's going to happen next. Because if you think you know what anything is, you're not going to investigate it. If you think you know what the breath is, there is no way you can investigate it. If you think you know what lettuce is, if you think no, you know what lentil soup is, there's no way you're going to really be there in this way, which is like just, it's almost like a state of awe or wonder. Um, 
and it's bringing together a childlike awareness and a, and a, a wise sage awareness. So that willingness to um, sacrifice the need to know what will happen next is a kind of humility. It's a very pure, it's very pure. And this is why we say, it's like if investigation is colored by aversion or colored by attachment, it's not pure exploration. It's really not investigation. So say sleepiness comes up and you wanna investigate what that experience actually feels like as if it's the first time. Like you really don't know what sleepiness is. Uh, if you start investigating that out of trying to get rid of it, don't do it. Go to the anchor. Because what you're doing at that point is in reinforcing aversion. Do you see the difference? Say there's lust. Lust is there. It's like maybe we're falling for it and getting into thoughts about it, or maybe we think, oh, this shouldn't come up. Uh, either way, there's no way you can really investigate it. So the idea is that you have that um, honesty. It's, it's such a foolproof system of cultivating honesty. Because when you investigate something out of aversion, it backfires. You end up in a tighter knot, you know? And it's like it doesn't lead to happiness. And learning that even like with something painful, it's better to move away from pain Always, it's better to move away from pain with your awareness than to go into it with aversion. Because again, all it's going to do is reinforce aversion. So that's why, as we were talking about this morning, this is purifying our motivation, ultimately. And again, it's a perfect feedback system because you, know, you can sit there and hate sleepiness and hate sleepiness, but it doesn't help anything. It just makes you hate. <laughs> so that I wanted to just bring up again that willingness not to know what's happening. It's like when that is present, there's less and less fear of unpredictability. So there's less need to control. The one thing that we could all say is the truth when you take out any kind of um, dogma or any kind of belief system, it's like the one thing you could really all agree on is the next moment is unpredictable. That is the truth. And so because that is the truth, there's a tendency for us to want to control and to want to nail it all down, and then we'll feel secure. But we're unprotected then. And there's always fear. When we're disconnected from the truth of unpredictability, then of course we're afraid. If we're connected to the truth of unpredictability, we're not afraid, because we know anything can happen. So it's like the, the fear is really of aliveness itself. It's like you can't have aliveness without change. Just try to stop the breath. <laughs> you won't last long. <laughs> it's moving, and it's good that it's moving. Just try to stop a sound. It's like you can't. It's alive. Life is alive. I saw um, a picture of a rooster that Picasso had written recently with a little saying of what he had said next to it. And again, I um, didn't have paper or pen, but he said something like, uh, you must always discover a piece of paper or a box or a rooster. And he said that um, you must go through a door and never look back. 
and this is we talk on each other. It's like you, the doorway. We all. I, I'm. I'm really encouraging finding your sense door that's easy for you. It's an entry point for what? For being more alive. For actually being able to be here more fully. And the reason why um, <laughs> we're tentative about this or ambivalent about it is because if we actually are not intellectually analyzing the behavior of reality, which is us, nature is us, but we're actually in it with the breath, it's, it's, we're not separate from the breath. We're there moving with it and it's disappearing. We're not separate from the sound. We're with it. It's, di it's moving. It's disappearing. At some point, insight happens. And it, it's like that first insight is a, usually insight into impermanence. That everything that takes birth will, will live and pass away. And it's like the deeper implication, of course, is that each moment is unknown. Truly unknown. Or on another level, you could say it's ungraspable, it's moving so fast. And then the next, um, that's called the Nietzsche, the next uh, dukkha. It's because everything is changing that experience is unreliable. It's, it's unreliability. I sometimes like to use the word vulnerability after unreliability because it's because experience is unreliable. We're vulnerable. And, and I like to just encourage people sometimes to try to be um, vulnerable for a few seconds and then anchor. And just, just try to be with that feeling uh, for a few seconds again and then anchor. So you just get to taste that exquisite aliveness of being, of just being, without our, our security props, without the props of concept. And then let yourself have a concept and just start to just play with it rather than feel like I have to do each other. It's not a forced march. Don't make it a forced march. It's no fun. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not saying this is great fun. It's an impermanence, unreliability, <laughs> uncertainty. But then we're protect when we're connected to unreliability, when we're connected to uncertainty, we're safe. It's when we're not connected that we're so defenseless. And then the third insight, again, they're all facets of a diamond, like the Brahma Viharas are facets of the diamond. Anatta, atta itself, anatta means that basically wherever you place your attention, if you actually are, are aware of it, um, it's, it's insubstantial, it, it's disappearing. And, and I really think this is the one that um, distinguishes the Buddhist teaching, maybe more than anything. It, because it's like when I think of my dad, you know, who had, you know, went through the Depression, fighter pilot in World War II, he had a Nietzsche down. He, you know, he was pretty intelligent. He, like, got impermanence pretty well. And he certainly got to go well, you know, unreliability. And um, uh, I do think there's a certain level that if you live long enough and you actually have some intelligence and you're really paying attention, these first two are fairly clear. I remember when my Steve, uh, my my ex now, but we were married for 24 years, and I was very close to his mom and. Uh, she had to go in the hospital. She fell, and um, she was 90. She had hit her head in the bathroom, um, in the bathtub, and she she was, uh, you know, she was in the hospital for a month, and we thought she might die, and she was unconscious for I think uh, four days, 
And one of the things she loved is in the morning, she just loved this. She loved a cup of coffee and to read the newspaper. She got up really early, like at 5 in the morning, but that was her routine, to have a cup of coffee. And every day I'd wait to see if she was going to wake up, and I'd have a little cup of coffee ready and, and her newspaper. And she woke up, and that's, that's what she wanted. And I put it down, and um, the headline, the, uh, the war in Iraq had just started. Like, you know, America had just bombed. <laughs> and this was the headline. And she, you know, was born in 1911. And so this is her first thing, right? She looks down. Cause, and she's so happy that the coffee's there, that I'm there, you know, and she looks down and she, she went, oh no. <laughs> she just went, oh no. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not sure I want to live through another war. <laughs> and it was so sweet. But I, I really learned something from that. It was like, yeah, right. You know, it's like, how many do you have to live through in one lifetime? It's, oh, just that. Um, how do you relate to that? And you know what's the perspective as you get older? Is so, like how do you you know the work with that um, acceptance that that's what happens, but also the willingness to keep standing up to it. So insubstantiality, anatta. Of course, we're going to be going into more and more and more. But if you look at the latest science. This is where it can be really interesting. An example would be, and I don't even know the names of the microscopes at this point that they must have, but say something that I might have, might have been aware of in 1973 or something, you know, you know, before they got so sophisticated. But you know, if you actually looked through a microscope at your hand, maybe a real old-fashioned one, you would see a lot of space between things, right? You'd see the cells and so And then nowadays, they're mainly seeing space. This is the same as when you bring your attention in there. It's the same as a laser microscope. And at first, it's, you know, we always, I always want to joke, you know, it says the blurb for this um, retreat will mention intensive. It's intensive meditation. It's, an in, it's intense. And so when you bring your attention to something, initially, it gets more intense. Why? Because it's like a laser beam. You know, fear comes. You place your attention on it. It's like, whoa, wow, that's fear. You know, it's not like you're like walking down the street eating a Twinkie and sort of like, you sort of barely notice that fear is happening. This is like, you're in this like silent bubble, you know, I haven't been talking, and fear comes up and it's meant to be intense because you're taking a closer look at it. That's why it takes courage. That's why you need an anchor so that you have this ability to go bring your attention inside the hand and it's like, well, sometimes it hardly seems like it's even there. That's insight. It is, it is insubstantial, uh, but we might notice something like that hundreds of times and no insight. And that's hard. I mean, that willingness to keep being with things and being with things and being with things. But when there is a glimpse, when there is something that will wake you up, it has such impact. It, you know, it's like what brings us back to retreats. It's, it's like these glimpses of the truth have such a profound impact. They're transformative. And they don't, you know, I want to be careful of saying it's like often we have insight when we least expect it. And this is another, such an important aspect of wise investigation. You can't get rid of agenda. You can't get rid of expectation. But you can start to notice it. And you can start to find a deeper motivation, not by getting rid of it, but just sort of almost like, ha, 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 expectation. Because expectation and agenda kills connection. And I don't use the word kill lightly. 
It's like when we're, and this is, you can notice it. It's with yourself, with yourself. Certainly you notice it with close people. It's like when you go to be with somebody and there's an agenda, you can't connect. You can't connect with things as they are in the moment. You're not connecting with the truth. You're connecting mainly with the projection and you're going to play ricochet. It'll be projection, you know, there won't be any ability to really explore the relationship, right? Agenda and exploration kills the possibility for a relationship with the breath, with the sound, with your body, with emotion, with thought, with another person, with anything. Uh, no, this is nothing you can force, but you can start to understand it. And what you can notice when you do have an ex expectation, and see its limitation. This is from the seventh Dalai Lama. An image reflected in a mirror, a rainbow in the sky, and a painted scene make their impression upon the mind, but in essence are other than what they seem. Look deeply at the world and see an illusion, a magician's dream. That's from the Song of the Immaculate Path. So how do we develop a relationship of trust with ourselves and trust with life? It's like when you notice that you go to pay attention to anything, and it's through the filter of attachment or aversion, agenda, exp expectation, then you know you can anchor. You have a choice there. You can do compassion, metta. You can anchor. Uh, but you can see that um, if you attempt to be with something painful and you're trying to control it, all you get is the control and there's no, there's no trust, there's no safety. If you approach your, uh, uh, say you have some shoulder pain and you want to bring your attention in there but the intention is to try to get rid of it, how can there be trust? It's just going to feel like you're going to try to control it, and it's going to tighten more. <laughs> it's going to be like, Michelle, no, please, <laughs> go to the anchor. I wish, you know, I wish we could have, you know that football game yesterday. I kept thinking, wouldn't it be great if any time we you know, went to the anchor when it would be skillful, and it was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in some ways we can say that um, we're looking for the ability where the unknown can thrive. You know, where, where aliveness can thrive. And that happens when the controller isn't there fiddling the motivation of trying to get rid of or, you know, get. When that, when that is absent, there's this possibility for life thriving and for understanding. And, and, and it's like that honest self-assessment, that ability to know that anchoring, resting, building up the courage, there'll be interest when there's enough <coughs> energy courage. You, you, dip, you dip your feet into that, how things are, you go back to the anchor, or you shift to the anchor in just a way that it's insight. You don't have to necessarily do choices awareness, you just turn and, and you're with the, with the breath or sound or whatever, uh, watching it, watching its behavior, watching its nature.
on my um, self-retreat in March. I went into the bathroom and I just started looking out the window at the roof. And I just was there for a while. I call it useless gazing. <laughs> I really like the practice of useless gazing and just standing there. And uh, this minor bird was on the roof and it noticed me. And it just, we were just both hanging out there. And then it started to walk down the roof. And it looked up at me and it tripped. <laughs> These moments are really important. You know, it's not like they're like, you know, the classical traditional insight, but they're so connecting. You know, and this bird looks so self conscious. <laughs> it just looked like you didn't see that, man. <laughs> that are black and puffy and um, I went out for a little walk today and uh, I didn't get it yet this black squirrel just came right up to my feet and I'm like wow you're really friendly and it was looking up at me I didn't connect it to the <laughs> no really it was really interesting you know and I went away and I'm like that's weird and then I walked a little further was just standing and um I picked up a feather, a crow feather, and I was just holding the feather, looking out, and this chickadee, <laughs> black cat chickadee, lands on the feather and is looking up at me, and I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> I forgot that I had these things that. And then two chickadees landed on me. <laughs> with other beings and that feeling of um, that they're really family that they're part of us you know the loneliness that can happen if we don't have these connections are, is so profound and it's again over and over again it's like human nature is nature it's not separate from nature and what we're learning to do is to not let anything have power over our heart over the chitta, over the, the sensitivity. And I, I think the deepest spiritual emotion is, is gratitude. When we get these glimpses, it means that we've let reality touch us without going through the thought process. That's, that's wise investigation. It's when we really let, we receive life, and it hasn't gone through that analytical thought process. So I wanted to end with a, a poem by Saigyo, the Japanese poet monk. He lived from 1118 to 1190. And I, what's so great about this is that notice the word it in it. And it is a really um, what I've been talking about tonight. <coughs> Whatever it is, I cannot understand it. Although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Whatever it is, I cannot understand it, although gratitude stubbornly overcomes me until I'm reduced to tears. Let's sit for a minute.
so it's time for walking and then the meta chance. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.